Hey, everybody. Uh, I know if you've been following the news, you've heard of the draft leak of the potential reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision. Um, myself and uh, friends of mine on both sides of the aisle really have trouble sifting through the legal jargon and, and case law and all that stuff. So I'm bringing in Cameron Atkinson today to talk about uh, how he sees the draft decision, what his beliefs are about the opinion from a legal perspective, um, and some of his disagreements with the potential uh, draft or final decision. We also talk about the history of the Supreme Court. Um, Cam is a trial and appellate lawyer, a constitutional scholar, and he's presented cases to the Supreme Court, and he specializes in criminal defense and civil rights, among other things. Uh, this conversation is just I wanted to do uh, what I would consider a public service because it's really hard to find long form discussions about the roots of these debates and discussions. Um, and so this is my attempt to do that uh, honestly, uh, based on conversations I've had with friends on both sides of the aisle that are unfamiliar with the legal implications, decisioning and ramifications. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Cam. And if you like this video, don't forget to like it on YouTube and subscribe. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a very special episode of Opposing Points. My guest today is Cameron Atkinson. Uh, he's a trial and appellate lawyer and a constitutional scholar. Um, he's had substantial roles in briefing cases to the U.S. Supreme Court and specializes in criminal defense, civil rights, and employment law. Um, Cam, how you doing? I'm doing great, David. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Awesome. So I, I always like to get to know the guests a little bit for the show. So, you know, even if people disagree with you, they can at least like who you are, right? Um, well, as, as long as we're not talking about my address and painting a bullseye on my back, <laughs> I'm happy to share. <laughs> yeah. So, how did you um, how did you get into practicing law, and what are some of your your qualifications? You know, maybe cool cases you've argued or. Sure. So, as a kid, um, I was start well let's start with the bad stuff right away i was a rebel as a kid i was a very rebellious kid everything that my parents said to do i did the opposite um they were the law i was the rebel and i was on a mission to rebel against whatever the law was if my father gave me a uh, instructions on how to do a job i would come up with a better way to do it and even though it may not have been the uh, better way to do it it was my way so it was inherently better and basically my attitude could have been summed up by a phrase I coined when I was like nine or ten of I don't follow the rules the rules follow me and uh, he that gave my parents more grief than uh, you could ever imagine so there was a strong rebellious streak against the law or rules in my childhood and then um as I'm reaching high school, um, 
I stunk at math. I really struggled at math. Uh, I hated math. I hated science. I hated anything having to do with rigid formulas because, again, I rebelled against rules. So when they have the, my father, my parents are having the conversation with me about what are you going to do with your career? What are you going to do with your life, et cetera? As a kid, my goal was to focus on something that got me out of doing math and got me out of doing science. Um, when you consider the careers, whether you're going into the clergy, I figured I was too much of a bad boy to become a clergyman. So uh, that was a no, uh, that was a no, no. Um, when you consider a career as a military officer, I figured out that would require me to do too much math as well. So it was like, <laughs> nah. And then so finally lawyers dangling out there, but now I'm like, I don't want to be somebody who's stuck in a quiet courtroom out in the middle of nowhere, just simply dealing with the mundane. So then it was, how do I get into politics, et cetera? So there was an early inclination when I would, I would say when I was 14, 13, 14, about wanting to have something to do with the law, but not quite being sure as to what form that would take. And it kind of got into more of politics and being involved in some sort of legislating. I get to college, I major in business, um, and I figure, well, math isn't so bad. You have stuff like Excel, and it does the math for you, and so you can be lazy. And then I end up doing a lot of uh, startup consulting for uh, folks in New York City, et cetera. I jump in on the Bitcoin craze, the early days when we were trading it with uh, paper money and coffee shops and laptops, et cetera. And so mm. I get to meet a number of interesting people. So one of my uh, consulting gigs as a freelancer ends up with a fellow in New York City and uh, he's getting bought out by an equity firm and, or a venture capital firm. I forget um, how they exactly classified themselves. So uh, in order to help him get his documents together, I was doing a lot of writing for him. I was prepping him for this and during the process, I got exposed to some of the lawyers in the process, and I was like, well, there's a lot of money going around, and I want to be on the other side of the table. So, and I was kind of getting sick of politics to some extent because it just never moved and I'm not diplomatic by any nature. I, I basically tell someone to screw you if I feel like telling somebody to screw you. And being involved in politics involve following rules of sorts, rules of diplomacy. So um, my, my taste for that had gone sour. So I developed this weird conception that I want to be a transactional lawyer who gets his MBA and his law degree and somehow becomes the captain of the ship for developing um, for developing and acquiring rising startups. 
So I get to law school on that premise, and I have a devil of a time finding those type of jobs. They're hard to get into. I didn't go to top 14 law school. I went to some uh, law school most people would have never heard of, uh, Quinnipiac here in Connecticut. Um, and so I didn't have those opportunities available to me. Um, so I had to look for alternatives. So my after my first year of law school, my first job in law was an internship with a Connecticut prosecutor's office. I got to see the courtroom every day, et cetera. And I, I started to say I could see myself being there. I come back to law school for my second year and uh, one of the extracurricular competition activities you have in law school is called moot court mm -hmm. where it basically simulates a uh, U.S. Supreme Court argument. You get a fact pattern to work with. You have to do your research and essentially argue a constitutional yeah. question, either criminal or civil. And I loved that there was I loved to write about the issues and I loved to stand in a front of a panel of judges and argue and being the typical rebel uh, that I was I thought I was smarter than every panel of judges I went <laughs> in front of as I learned to my sorrow much sorrow at points I am not <laughs> so uh I viewed it as a competition. So coming out of that um, experience, coming out of my second year or my fir first semester, second year, I interned for a U.S. district court judge, a federal trial court judge here in Connecticut for approximately four months. I got to see the work she did, et cetera. I got to see... Um, the, I basically got to learn how a judge thinks in four months. So that was an eye opener. And then com coming out of my second year, I go to work for a real estate lawyer on Long Island. I, and that ex really exposed me to the savage side of the law. New York is the unique place in terms of litigation um they, there's a reason why they call new york city the city that never sleeps it's all business in new york there's less courtesy than you'll see in other places etc and it, it taught me the the necessity of cutthroat litigation which as a rebel at that point or uh, a lifelong rebel i should say that kind of appealed to me so i'm coming back to connecticut for my third year of law school now with my confidence shaken in whether i want to be this all backseat uh butt shiner of a chair shining a chair with my butt um transactional lawyer so <laughs> i had been following uh the progress of a, a lawyer in Connecticut who I now, whose firm I now work for, and he had been defending um, a high-profile murder case or alleged murder case in the state of Connecticut, and uh, he 
had he had been defending Alex Jones in the Sandy Hook law or massacre lawsuits that were brought against him by the, those parents. So I was intrigued by the work he did. I had had prior exposure to him um, when I worked for the Connecticut prosecutor's office. And I can tell you my first impression of him is if I ever committed a crime, this is the guy I want because he will he will go to no end. He will not stop at any ends within the meaning of the law to defend you. And he was ruthless about it. So I love that about him. And he gets in touch with me and he asks if I want to clerk for his firm. And of course, I'm like, hell yeah. So I come in and I clerk for his firm and I were, we're doing normal employment and, um, and criminal defense cases. And that exposure to him, seeing him argue some of these cases and being involved in these cases finally makes up my mind. This is the work I want to do. This is, these are the fights I want to pick. I don't want to be in a place where I'm going to have to follow rules for the rest of my life. My destiny in life is to fight the law and not in a way where I'm wearing orange, but in a way where I'm wearing a gray suit like this. So that, um, that made my decision easy. Um, I graduated law school. I took the bar. I became licensed and in the middle of the pandemic. And what we saw in the middle of the pandemic was an unparalleled infringement on civil liberties uh, during that time. And our firm got out in front of that. Um, we challenged New York's uh, mandate of uh, COVID vaccinations over religious exemptions to health care workers. That case, uh, I was fortunate enough to argue that case uh, twice in front of the Federal Court of Appeals in New York. And uh, we did brief that case to the U.S. Supreme Court and lost, um, lost our bid for injunctive relief but we will be back. Um, I, that we then got on board with uh, Connecticut um, parents who wanted to send their kids to school without uh, certain vaccinations, your standard ones like chicken pox, measles, mumps, rubella, et cetera. Um, Connecticut completely repealed its religious exemption for school age kids or at school age and preschool kids to the point where you cannot go to a public, private, or religious school kindergarten, preschool, or daycare in the state of Connecticut without being vaccinated. Mm -hmm. That case is currently in front of the a federal appellate court, uh, and we're waiting, uh, we're awaiting oral argument in that, and we're confident that way one will ultimately make its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I, I long, long way of saying this, I have come to the point where I defend people accused of crimes. I stand between the despised and a vengeful government, and I defend I defend uh, civil liberties, and that has been the kind of lawyer that I've become. That's a that's a really really good um, 
introduction and, and kind of idea of what the cases you argue. Um, and we, we will get into some of the questions. I know this is a, we're going to focus on the Roe v. Wade um, kind of reversal here, but there will be a question related to that with the vaccine mandates a little bit. I think I'm, we'll touch on that when we get to that. Um, one of the things um, I find interesting, and, and I know you're a man of faith. Um, I know that there are also people that, you know, do not, um, do, are not uh, people of faith, right? And then there, you have people, and there's kind of a crisscross of, of what side of the constitution they stand on, right? So you have, um, you know, Christians for things like abortion or, or whatever and against, and you have atheists for abortion and against. Um, there seems to be a really um, stark difference in the way that the constitution is interpreted by even kind of the same group memberships. Uh, have you noticed that? Without a doubt, I've noticed it. Um, it spans all all creeds. It spans all. Uh, it, it's a hotly debated topic in uh, in legal circles, especially in academia. Um, it's a hotly debated political question. We just went through three to four Supreme Court confirmation hearings where the buzzwords originalism and original intent and what the founders meant dominated those hearings, et cetera, constitute the methods of constitutional inter interpretation have been on everybody's minds and they've undoubtedly been politic politicized for as long as I can remember and probably before you and I were alive. Right. Yes. Um, and again, I view this kind of, I'm approaching this from, uh, I'm, I'm trying to approach this, this, this whole conversation from sort of that, just let's get the facts to, to give to people. Um, and I view it as a public service because I don't think, you know, you can have you know, MSNBC and Fox saying certain things and uh, there's not really much substance and people are in their corners. And I really want to investigate everything here with you. And I think, that is something that is not really that done that often. Um, so what I would like to do is, is come at it from the legal perspective. I know people come at it from faith um, and, 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 and lack of faith, you could say, but um, I wanna look at it solely through like the constitutional law lens. Um, and so starting with the history of the Supreme Court, you know, when Roe v. Wade um, came to the court, um, for example, uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of the main argument is that it should have never gone to the court, right? That it, it should have been a decision that was up to the states and left to the states. So I want to investigate that a little bit. So could you tell uh, us the original kind of purpose of the Supreme Court? Um, as, as far as you understand it, what was its original uh, scope? And, and how did a law make its way to the Supreme Court? Um, for example, um, and I can repeat these questions if they're too if they're too many. But. I I will I will try. So, and I I'm I'm happy that we're approaching the question from that uh, direction. And I, for one, as a preliminary um, point, do not shy away from embracing the 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 fact that these are political questions. Well, we're we're not discussing a political battle of political ideologies we're discussing a um 
a, a genuine question of how we are to be governed as a self-governing people. Our, conf, uh, our constitution is the document that establishes that and inescapably the interpretation of that document is going to be political. Um, I think faith informs it to some extent, um, but as Thomas Aquinas uh, uh, expounded and advocated uh, their faith and reason are not mutually exclusive. And I think when we're looking at a constitutional document and faith and reason are in conflict, our duty as lawyers and judges and interpreters of that uh, document is to interpret it faithfully. And if a faithful interpretation runs contrary to our beliefs, we have mechanisms to change that um, to to conform to what we believe is morally right. That, uh, that said, getting to um, the purpose of the Supreme Court, um, I'm not sure that the, the founders had a very clear conception of what the Supreme Court was originally set up to do. Um, if we look at Article 3, Article 3 establishes one court and that's the U.S. Supreme Court, and then it yeah, delegates co to Congress the power to establish such inferior courts as it may deem uh, fit. So Congress passes the Judiciary Act of 1789, which establishes federal circuits, and then within federal circuits, it establishes district courts so that the federal circuits act as an intermediate area appellate court and the um and the district courts act as trial courts and the, those lines were even blurred at that point uh the circuit courts acted as trial courts in some cases, and there are early reported cases of you, the circuit Supreme Court justices, the Supreme Courts who were assigned to ride the land on circuit and dispense the law or help with the dispensing of the law actually sat as trial judges in the early going. So I would say that after the Judiciary Act was passed in the, in the early days of the Supreme Court, they met rarely. They were considered to be an appellate court of last resort. They had their cases where they had original jurisdiction or right the they were the only place you or first place you could bring a case, for example, a lawsuit between uh, states, for instance. And, um, and the conception of the court was not as we know it today. The Supreme Court was the forgotten branch. In fact, I remember reading somewhere in history that the, the first, and this really shows the uh, place of the Supreme Court in early, early American history, is for the first 10 to 20 years of its existence, the Supreme Court didn't have its own building. It met in the basement of the, uh, of the Capitol building or where Congress met. Wow. Literally, we were talking about a room in the basement 
Department or the Supreme Court was. And when uh, John Mar Marshall becomes the Chief Justice, he is the first person who elevates the Supreme Court to something that we understand it to be today. Um, his famous statement in Madison versus Marbury, the court's job is to say what the law is, not what the law should be. Um, his challenges of executive power, um, his spats within President ja Andrew Jackson over uh, issuing certain rulings and then Jackson saying, let Marshall enforce it if he can. Um, th those were real times of tension where the Supreme Court had to assert itself as a co-equal branch of government that actually functioned as a check and balance. So while the, uh, the founders did conceive of the judiciary as a check and balance upon the executive and, the, uh, uh, and Congress, uh, the Supreme Court had to fight for its role, fight for that role and fight for the respect that it deserved because it was a, it was a non-notable branch of government to start with in early American history. How did cases get to the Supreme Court? Well, I think that starts to what we mean, we have to start with what we mean by cases. And I think what's most of most interest to your listeners is civil rights cases. So I'm just going to briefly digress from civil rights for a minute and give a broader overview and then return to the concept of civil rights. So the Supreme Court as the federal appellate court or the, of the la, as the last court of the federal appellate court of last resort had appellate jurisdiction over any civil or um, criminal matters that arose under federal law. It, apart it had no role in appeals from state courts. It had to be what lawyers know as a federal question to get to, a, uh, to, get to the Supreme Court or to a federal court. Do you mind if I interrupt you for a second? Sure. So uh, the, 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 the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, did that, uh, like, it, this just reminded me of it. So did that originally only apply to the federal government? And so is this why you're saying state laws would not normally go to the Supreme Court? Yes. In Barron v. Baltimore, the Supreme Court held that the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states originally. And... It was not until we have the enactment of the 14th Amendment where our, our struggles with unenumerated rights, um, such as the one articulated in Roe, begin. Uh, we needed the 14th Amendment to do two things. Uh, first, it had to do what's in called incorporate or apply the Bill of Rights against the states, which this, it took the Supreme Court until 1925 to actually do that. But um, the second thing that it did was it 
imposed unenumerated rights or rights not contained in the uh, constitution. It imposed protections for those rights on the states. That gets in my mind to the crux of the preliminary crux, the historical context for the Roe v. Wade debate. Mm -hmm. And that is, in our history, we have had a, a what I would describe as a love-hate relationship with unenumerated rights. They're unenumerated. Who determines what's a right? And so while we had the enumeration of specific rights in the Bill of Rights and the anti-federalists who opposed the ratification of the federal constitution and could only be persuaded to support its ratification required guarantees that the federal government itself would not impose on individual rights and states' rights beyond its powers as enumerated in the Constitution and beyond the prohibitions established by the Bill of Rights. And so what the founders did is they looked to, to the British constitutional system. And everybody knows about the Magna Carta and that, that it's a source of uh, rights for Englishmen, et cetera. It's been it's preceded our constitution. But what they most people don't understand about the British constitutional system is that there is no written system of rights, rights, constitutional rights. British constitutional rights developed in a common law tradition or judicial recognition of those rights or as law my uh, hinted at natural law or an understanding of these are the rights that go to a free people who self-governs, etc. So British law operated on an unspoken tradition of unenumerated rights. The founders seek in order to pacify the anti-federalists and create the new government to reflect place the Articles of Confederation government have to include the Ninth Amendment in the federal constitution, which even though it has been written out of modern constitutional doctrine, uh, that Ninth Amendment prohibits the federal government from infringing on those unenumerated rights. So prior to the Civil War, the Supreme Court itself struggled on several occasions on how to define unenumerated rights. In the 1850s, there were, um, there were several Supreme Court cases that uh, flirted with a notion of due process could guarantee some substantive rights, et cetera. They usually had to do with uh, property rights. Um, I know Dred Scott uh, versus Sanford was one such decision. And I recall a patent law decision from the Supreme Court uh, that expressed, that struggled with the question as well. Come the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, when we're finally getting down to, we need to 
affect a sea change in federal constitutional protections in the sense that we are going to apply those against the states. And there's this conception of, well, do we just apply the uh, Bill of Rights against the states, or are we applying unenumerated rights as well? And this becomes a topic of debate in the U.S. Senate and uh, Congress during the ratification debates. And so the 14th Amendment um, framers, the sponsors of the 14th Amendment are defending the 14th Amendment in Congress and they're answering questions as to what unenumerated rights are protected and what is the source of those unenumerated rights. And John Bingham, the lead framer of the, and defender of the 14th Amendment in the uh, U.S. House states that the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment would be the source both of the application of the Bill of Rights against the states and the recognition of unenumerated rights. Well, members of the U.S. House press him as to what are the um, unenumerated rights that he's contemplating. And Bingham names two sources. He names a case issued by our uh, case decided by uh, Justice Bushrod Washington, a U.S. Supreme Court uh, justice who was riding circuit at the time, very famous case known as Corey Field versus Coriel. I'm not, I always get the names confused on the order there. So don't, don't, fact check me on that one um but they enumerated certain unenumerated rights such as the right to travel etc more than i can they're more than i can remember off the top of my head and then he named um con the rights contained in uh the eight, I believe the 1866 or the 1867 Civil Rights Act that Congress attempted to pass and uh, President Johnson uh, vetoed as Congress not having the power to impose upon the states constitutionally. So there was the privileges or immunities clause, there would be rights recognized. They were specific unenumerated rights, very clearly defined, and they would be derived from those two sources. The Supreme Court has other ideas in 1872. Um, it gets a case called the slaughterhouse cases having to do with uh, slaughterhouses in Louisiana, if I remember correctly. And there are claims against either the city of New Orleans or uh, Louisiana under the federal constitution. And the Supreme Court holds that the federal constitution does not protect the 14th Amendment does not protect unenumerated rights through its privileges or immunities clause. That puts the Supreme Court in a bind because the 14th Amendment's history clearly indicates that it protects unenumerated rights. So in 
1905, I believe, the Supreme Court starts rolling this concept back um, in the Lochner decision. You will hear Lochner v. New York. You will hear this case mentioned as the most hated case in American history. Everybody thinks it's bad. I don't. I don't think it's bad. Um, but and a small minority of scholars agree with me, but uh, that's a bit beside the point. But the Supreme Court decides that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment confers substantive rights. And until it in that decision, but that's the beginning of where it was. Um, Nobody had conceived of this before. So we're breaking entirely new constitutional ground as to what's happening with the 14th Amendment. And the Supreme Court takes a very liberal, and I don't mean liberal as in political, but a very liberal view of striking down state economic laws under Lochner, and it eventually scales it back in, I believe, either the 1940s or the 1950s. And concurrently in 1925, it incorporates the First Amendment against the states using this due process clause, something the framers of the 14th Amendment never considered at all. So the result is before we get to Roe v. Wade, before we get to Griswold v. Connecticut, the contraception case, um, before we get to any unenumerated rights cases, we break completely undefined ground with no rules whatsoever. That is the landscape that the Supreme Court sets for when we get to Roe v. Wade. Okay, so so if I have this right, um, prior to this the Fourteenth Amendment, um, let's say a state wanted to, uh, unless the the state's uh, own constitution was the supreme law of the land, is that correct? The the state's constitutions apply were the only restriction on the state's police power, the state's power to regulate for the health, safety, and morals of its citizens. Yep. Until the 14th Amendment was uh, put in place and until the Supreme Court recognized uh, its provisions, both in applying the Bill of Rights and then in, uh, in applying unenumerated rights formulations, state constitutions were the only protections for individual liberty. Right. So a state theoretically could, um, you know, regulate free speech, right? And prior to the 14th Amendment, that would not have been an issue that would go to the Supreme Court, right? Exactly. In fact, I can give you an example of a case that did go to the Supreme Court under um, that, and that is uh, under that theory, and that is the, the um, uh, 
the Prince versus Massachusetts case where the Supreme Court had to revisit uh, Gitlow v. New York, which incorporated the First Amendment against the states, or at least the free speech clause of the First Amendment uh, against the states. And Prince v. Massachusetts basically concerned a Jehovah's Witness who was uh, using her kid to distribute religious leaflets on the sidewalk. And uh, their Massachusetts had a child labor law, if I recall correctly, that applied to her and prohibited it. She claimed that it was a violation of her right to speak freely and a violation of her right to uh, freely exercise her religion. And um, I, I'm not sure if she asserted claims under the Massachusetts Constitution, but um, that was the issue taken to the Supreme Court is the Massachusetts Constitution didn't protect what she was claiming, her religious beliefs and her religious freedom. Okay, so, so we basically, prior to the 14th Amendment, Supreme Court is looking at cases and saying, this law is unconstitutional, this law is unconstitutional, like one by one, this law is constitutional. Um, and then the states, the states start regu- um, start uh, the 14th Amendment passes. The states start regulating, let's say, guns or speech. That become because of the 14th Amendment is now incorporated if it gets challenged to go up to the Supreme Court. And then that uh, the Supreme Court is still it's it starts kind of doing this precedent thing and, and case law thing, where uh, we saw with with Roe v. Wade basically every like law regulating abortion, I think it was up until like 23 weeks. I don't know if I have that right, was was unconstitutional in the states. And so uh, when when Trump took office and nominated the mul- multiple conservative justices, that's when the states kind of started passing these uh, bills like the one in Missouri. Do I have that right? Partially correct. So okay. prior to the advent of the 14th Amendment, um, the only thing the Supreme Court was doing was looking to see if there was a federal question in it before it. Um, if since the Bill of Rights didn't apply, state uh, state laws or state case appeals from state cases that came before it were. Oh, I hate to say summarily rejected for lack of jurisdiction because there was no federal issue, but that's akin to what was happening. The Supreme Court was saying, we have no business here whatsoever. Go about your business. This is not a federal issue. Go because the Constitution doesn't apply. Um, After the 14th Amendment's passed, and after the Supreme Court starts recognizing that it applies to the states, then it becomes a process of how, when, where, why does it apply to the states? Okay, interesting. And so now we can kind of get a little bit in, into the, the, the Roe v. Wade um, decision. I think that's really good context for people to have as far as the history and and all the case laws that you mentioned. Um, So like I said before, there was a spectrum, right? Um, There's, there's, there are people, um, you know, there there are Christians maybe who've never read the constitution. They believe that the fetus is a life. Um, There are those that are are not faithful and they don't believe it is a life. Um, Barring the, I guess, moral question that is never maybe not be, being answered right uh, between the the divisions in the country. What are the legal reasoning? What's the legal reasoning behind behind why um, you know an atheist that 
uh, believes in the constitutional and uh, observes it a certain way might agree with maybe a religious Christian that is basing it just on their faith. Like what, what is the constitutional basis um, for why, uh, why Roe v. Wade was a, a poor decision? It comes down to the method of analysis. Um, remember how I said earlier that, the, that once the Supreme Court starts recognizing unenumerated rights under yep. the due process clause, we're breaking entirely new ground. We have to come right. up with standards to govern this. So some of the early standards we were looking at, um, I believe it was Palco v. Connecticut, we were looking at what was fundamental in our nation's tradition or fundamental in some scheme of ordered liberty or some sort of language like that. So that's the, the early starting point for the standard of recognizing rights. That develops over time, not really, not very clearly until after Roe v. Wade and after Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which reaffirms Roe v. Wade. So by the time we get to Roe v. Wade, we've already had Griswold versus Connecticut. We've already had a lot of incorporation cases or cases that applied the Bill of Rights against the states. So we're essentially looking at um, the, how do we bridge this gap for unenumerated rights between what we've done to apply the Bill of Rights to the states and how we're going to start recognizing unenumerated rights. And the Griswold formulation of doing this was to give what Justice Thomas likes to critically call and which is actually a statement in Griswold is emanating from the penumbras. And basically what Griswold did is it looks at the first, fourth, and fifth, and 14th amendments, and maybe the ninth amendment along the way, and it creates this right to privacy. There is no right to privacy enumerated in the Constitution uh, apart from the Fourth Amendment. And so the this fourth, is... the Fourth Amendment is specific about how the right to privacy is interpreted. Persons, places, things. You need a warrant in order to search those things, etc. But it, it uh, those persons, places, or things, or seize them—a search warrant or arrest warrant or what have you. But it's silent as to the civil context of that, uh, about a civil right to privacy, about bar, barring state regulations of contraception, then the bedroom relationships, et cetera. That's a wide open field at that point. Yeah, because I think, I think this, what you're talking about is where many people would suggest, all right, so we've got unenumerated rights. Right to privacy seems like a reasonable one, right? Like where, yeah, I don't want anyone, you know, like disclosing my health information or disclosing my financial information and banks have a fiduciary responsibility to not disclose this and that. I understand. So, so 
if, so, if well, it, we let, 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 let's put it in the vernacular. If I look out the window of my backyard and I see somebody poking around in my backyard who doesn't belong there, there's nine to one odds that I'm going to walk out there with my 12 gauge and ask them, <laughs> what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> That's our conception of privacy as Americans. It's something that we hold there. You have property, you want to have privacy in it. Uh, my relationships are none of your business. What I do in my bedroom is none of your business. Mind your own business. That's the vernacular. It's an entirely reasonable one. It's one that the Fourth Amendment contemplates to degree, but not to the specificity that um, would be necessary to support uh, Griswold or to support a Roe v. Wade by explicit constitutional language. So we had defined a broader right to privacy under those, under those am amendments, and there was a reluctance to, in to specifically incorporate the Ninth Amendment or apply the Ninth Amendment against the states, and then how to interpret the Ninth Amendment. Um, and there, in my view, there are scholars who argue otherwise, but in my view, uh, John Bingham in defending the Bill of Rights or the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment during the ratification debates was very clear that the Privileges or Immunities Clause did not apply the Ninth Amendment against the states. There are scholars out there, uh, God love them, I love them, I love the debate who would argue otherwise, but my reading of the historical record is he was marginally clear at worst that the Ninth Amendment didn't apply. So I don't think the justices in Griswold felt free to just go straight to the Ninth Amendment, say it applies, and then this is where we're going to find the right of privacy. So they come up with this nucleus between the first, fourth, fifth, and 14th Amendments to create to recognize something that we all under we all hold is reasonable and what they do with that is the early a formation of substantive due process analysis which is say this is so fundamental in our nation in in our history and tradition and it's so implicit in the comp in the scheme of ordered liberty that we live under that liberty that justice and freedom and all these great things that make america what it is cannot exist without it and by the way that includes contraception and you, the state has to stay out of the bedroom so that that is how Griswold comes about. Right. But the, the right to privacy in the context of I have the right to take um, birth control and the government doesn't have to know about it. You, so you would say that because you have this conflict now, right, between people who believe conception starts at, you know, you can't block uh, what, um, the fertilization of the egg, right? So would, would the right to privacy, like how, how would that, if, if that didn't exist, how would could contraception be banned, for example, like the like yes. they kind of... Un undoubtedly right now under the under the um, 
under the current conceptions until the Supreme Court said otherwise. Uh, it's within the health, safety, and morals of the state's police power. The state could ban, uh, ban contraception as being bad for health. Uh, it's unquestioned that they could do that without Griswold in place and without a right to privacy. So this right of privacy ostensibly gives birth to Roe. And this is the distinction that I, I think is lost in the, in the political debate, but there, the right to abortion was defended on two grounds. Roe recognizes the right to abortion under a right to privacy theory stemming from Griswold. Planned Parenthood v. Casey comes back and says, no, we don't necessarily think that's correct. We recognize it as a right to liberty under the 14th Amendment substantive due process clause, et cetera. So there's a, there's, even though the right to, to abortion continues to exist, the Supreme Court couldn't find out, couldn't make up its mind which foundation it rested on. That's why when we saw Alito's draft opinion can't come out, he had to address both the right to privacy and the right to, to liberty in that sense. But so the way I would describe Griswold, Roe, and Casey is that they, they established what can only be termed, in my view, as specially protected liberty interests. And why do I say that? We didn't have the language of fundamental unenumerated rights until much, until later, until the late 90s, et cetera. So, these recognitions of liberty and privacy, et cetera, were, were special. They were special in the sense that they broke new constitutional ground, and, but they were done in, an un, in what I would say is more of an unstructured analysis, which was what the, the, main, the main criticism of um, those decisions is they weren't necessarily tethered to structured analysis. That gets us to the great debate, in my view, over all unenumerated rights and Roe and Kate, the right to abortion in particular. That debate is now that we have arrived at a place where we have specific methods of analysis and a debate over methods of how to apply substantive due process that is now systematic. That to me is where the real question with Roe v. Wade and abortion lies. So let, let's talk about methods. The, the conservative method or the so-called conservative method comes in a case called um, Glucksburg is the shorthand. I think it was Washington versus Glucksburg or something. It was a case where various people who were terminally ill in Washington state uh, wanted to commit assisted physician-assisted suicide. Washington had a law that prohibited that um, and 
I think even treated, might have treated it as murder. Um, the terminally ill patients, even though they died before the litigation concluded, or some did, sued claiming a fundamental unenumerated right to liberty to end their lives. And the case reaches the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has to make a difficult call, particularly in light when we're looking at Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and it's arguable, at least under the reservations they made as to the philosophical and scientific debate, mm -hmm. that Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood Hood v. Casey authorized the termination of human life and declared that it could be a constitutional right. So that's the landscape when the case reaches to the, the Supreme Court and the conservative, so-called conservative justices have a majority at that point. So they lay the uh, found work of analysis our foundation for analysis that no one can persuade me that it wasn't ultimately targeted at rolling back Roe v. Wade, rolling back Griswold, et cetera. They basically say for us to uh, recognize a fundamental unenumerated right, that right, quote, must be objectively deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, such that neither liberty nor justice would exist if they were sacrificed. And this is, a, this is one of the key things that you bring up in your, in your article uh, on your website, right? Correct. That is an incredibly hard standard to meet because to meet that standard, you essentially have to go back through United States history and look at what the states have done in terms of treating certain, uh, certain uh, claimed right. You have to look at the history of state constitutions. You have to look at pre-founding uh, English common law, pre-founding colonial law. And you have to make a historical argument from those sources that this has been something that has been and content, that is continually reached back and been a part of liberty and individual rights from bef even before the founding and after the founding up until this point or up until recent history. And the Supreme Court justifies this high standard on the grounds that the court should not be imposing its legislative policy or substituting its legislative policy uh, judgments for those of the legislature, which is a swipe at Griswold, which is a swipe at Roe, because many conservatives felt that those were legislations from the bench. The Apart from a few exceptions, Lawrence v. Texas, which protects the, which is the first recognition of a right to homosexual intimacy. And a few, uh, I would, I'm not sure how many others between 
this formulation of substantive due process, this method of analysis holds firm until we get to Obergefell v. Hodges, the case that recognizes gay marriage. When we get to Obergefell, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the Lawrence opinion and then couldn't find anybody else to agree with him thereafter or form a majority to agree with him thereafter, he ends up siding with the liberal justices in Obergefell. And Justice Kennedy hated this Glucksberg test. He did not believe that it, it, the barrier for unenumerated rights should be set that high. And Justice Kennedy, with good reason, was called a justice who was very, very in tune and protective of individual liberty. So when he gets to Obergefell, he sees the need that he needs to lower this bar for unenumerated rights in such a way that it becomes more becomes easier to protect individual liberty. And the liberal justices, or the so-called liberal justices at that time, see this as their opportunity to roll back to some extent, the damage done to Roe v. Wade and Casey by the Glucksberg formulation of substantive due process. So Justice Kennedy proceeds to cite a number of cases uh, about uh, prior to Glucksberg where, where substantive due process was still growing in terms of a structured analysis, et cetera. And so he cites those cases to say that Glucksberg is unwarranted, and then he has the following to say, quote, rights do come not from ancient sources alone, end quote. Thus, he says in Obergefell, that the proper approach is a reasoned judgment approach that, quote, requires courts to exercise reasoned judgment in identifying interests of the person so fundamental that the state must accord them its respect, end quote. He then says, history and tradition guide and discipline this inquiry, but do not set its outer boundaries. So Justice Kennedy takes us back to this implicit in the concept of ordered liberty concept. And by taking us back there, he not only lowers the standard for the recognition of unenumerated rights, but he reopens the door somewhat to the fear of the Glucksberg majority, the conservative justices, that individual rights could be legislated from the bench without a historical foundation because Justice Kennedy liked ambiguity. He liked judges to be judges and make close calls, even when they involved constitutional rights, because he thought that was the best way to protect individual liberty. Yes, I, I want to jump in there with with just playing a little bit of devil's advocate here with, um, you know, the rooted in, in liberty or, or rooted in what the states were doing. 
And, and someone might say, well, a lot of states were, uh, with regards to the right to privacy, and someone might say, well, a lot of states were banning um, sodomy, um, which would outlaw um, gay relationships, or a lot of states were, um, uh, you know, supporting slavery. And so that was rooted in our nation's history. And so therefore, you know, saying that that's constitutional w- would fall into that. Do you, do you, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, it does. And it's, it's a fair point. And I think the, the rejoinder, at least the one that I've thought out in my mind, is I think we can distinguish over the gay marriage press, the recognition of gay marriage and the recognition of homosexual relationships from the right to abortion, because there is a good faith argument to be made that those are rights protected under the equal protection. Clause. Was that not the argument made for that? There was a r- argument in Obergefell made to that effect That's and another one in Lawrence. But here's here's it seems like the only one you need to me. <laughs> well, it would seem like the only one that you would need to me, too. But in both cases, Justice Kennedy was concerned with the respect we were going to afford afford to people. And so he went a step, my position is he went a step farther than he needed to go by going to recognizing it as uh, fundamental unenumerated rights. He could have solved the the question in the case the way he did, and we could have had gay marriage and homosexual relationships protected under the equal protection clause, and there would have been a good faith argument and a strong one that they should. Um, I, I haven't made a detailed study of that question enough to know where I come down on the interpretation of the equal protection clause in that context, but I am, I am familiar enough with it to say that is a much stronger foundation for it. Mm-hmm. Because of the respect that Justice Kennedy thought those rights deserved and the, the liberal justices agreeing with him, he went the step farther of recognizing them as their own individual substantive due process on enumerated rights, constitutional rights. Thus, for people who are concerned as to how those precedents could be called into question, they are in question because Justice Kennedy and the liberal justices went a step too far in an effort, in my opinion, to try to roll back Glucksburg calling into question the right to an abortion. Now, I I said something to you before we got on the call um, that I I or on the podcast, but um, Justice Alito's Dobbs opinion, the leaked Dobbs opinion, is really an attempt to return us to the Glucksburg standard. And by returning us to the Glucksburg standard, we're saying we're looking at the history of state criminalization of abortion. I believe Justice Alito goes back to English common law all the way back to the 13th century as to locate laws that have criminalized abortion, et cetera. He does a very thorough job under the Glucksburg analysis. It's a very historically faithful opinion in my view, and obviously there's room for disagreement as to that, but that, that, 
the I you cannot say uh, that he did his he did not do his work. The the concern that I have, and I think the concern that ev anyone who's considering the the constitutional issues here um, would be well justified in taking, is that Justice Alito's method of analysis is historically faithless. Um, it is clear that if we're going to respect history and tradition, we're not playing around, we should not be playing around with an ambiguous concept of substantive due process with no guideposts to determine um, to determine what fundamental unenumerated rights we are. In other words, if we start from scratch with substantive due process, it is an invitation for judges to legislate from the bench, which is precisely the concern that the conservative justices had in Glucksburg. People who are criticizing the right, uh, the overruling of abortion, uh, the right to abortion as political, have a point to a degree. Mm -hmm. And that's, that sounds strange coming from somebody who has stated that he believes abortion is intentional premeditated murder, but, and believes that Roe and Casey and the right to abortion have no foundation in the constitution. But the, the reality is if, if we're employing any sort of substantive due process analysis, whether it be under the Glucksburg method of analysis or under Justice Kennedy's Obergefell method of uh, analysis, we're rudderless. We're at the mercy of what a justice thinks is a right and whether how much historical support a justice thinks support is needed to support a fundamental unenumerated constitutional right. The 14th Amendment uh, framers, in my view, were very cognizant of that. And I think that is clearly shown by one of the questions that was repeatedly pressed on uh, Congressman John Bingham as he's defending the 14th Amendment before the House, and that is what are the sources of the unenumerated rights that the 14th Amendment protects, and what are those unenumerated rights? And John Bingham was very specific as to the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment was the, uh, was the the applying force, for lack of a better term, it was going to be the source as applied to the states. And he was very clear that those unenumerated rights were the ones that Justice, uh, Justice Bushrod Washington um, articulating in Corfield or Coriel versus Corfield or Corfield versus Coriel. I'm not, again, I'm confusing the name of that. But, mm -hmm. um, these were very cl clearly delineated, unenumerated constitutional rights. They had a foundation in English and colonial common law. They had been in employment in the employ and common law, state common law systems after the founding, et cetera. There was no question as to what rights were protected under Bingham's formulation. Um, 
this to me is the greater concern and the one as, as a lawyer and a scholar I am concerned about is we can fight about abortion all day in America. You will have your moral views on it, your scientific views, your philosophical views. I will have mine. We can battle that out. Um, we can even work ourselves up into a fever pitch and get out in the alley and throw a few fists. But the reality is this goes beyond just abortion. This is a debate about how we are going to exist in terms of a form, uh, in terms of our government. What is going to be the form of our self-government? And historical context, in the, um, it matters here. Uh, Pre-Civil War, if you ask somebody, if you were traveling somewhere and somebody asked you where you were from, you would tell them I'm a Virginian or I'm a, from I'm a Connecticut Yankee or et cetera. You took pride in that you were a member of a state. I travel anywhere internationally somewhere. I travel across the United States. I don't identify with the same pride and loyalty to my state where I'm from. I identify as I am an American. And it's that shift in attitude that it to me is both concerning and informs this debate. We had a government that was founded on liberties protected by state constitutions, government by state constitutions, and a federal government of limited powers. When we had that shift, a not, well, let me take a step back. And the reason why we had a form of government that was state-centered, not federal-centered, is state governments and state constitutions were closer to home. How hard is it to amend the federal constitution? Incredibly hard. If Take the abortion debate itself, for instance. Both sides can't get a constitutional amendment passed to settle the question. You're, uh, you're, you're picking ahead to one of my future questions I was going to ask, <laughs> is, 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 is can, they, can they pass a law on either side that no. would be constitutional unless no. they amended the constitution? Well, I, I have some thoughts on that, but before I get too outrageous, let's finish this discussion. <laughs> but, um, but so... We can't get a constitutional amendment passed at the federal level, but we have seen state constitutional amendments and state constitutional uh, decisions that have protected stuff like gay marriage, have protected abortion at the state level. We've seen those actions because it's easier to get them when government is closer to home and when the closer government and the protections of liberty to are to home, the more responsive they become to the people's needs. Um, gay marriage, homosexual intimacy, those were cases that the, the national movement fed off the state movement. The state court, Supreme Courts were way ahead of their uh, federal counterparts. The state legislatures were ahead of their federal counterparts in terms of recognizing, et cetera. Liberty is always best protected closer to home. 
And serious questions like this under an, our initial conception of government where they are deeply contested are better benefited in my view, at least being solved closer to home because we, the people, have a greater opportunity to participate in them. I don't know about you, David, but I have never spoken to my federal congressman. I've never spoken to my uh, federal senator. Um, I, I'd, I'd have to shower for too long to get <laughs> the stench off. <laughs> I have spoken to congressmen and senators, but not for my state. In other words, I cannot get my concerns and have a conversation with my representatives in any meaningful fashion at the federal level in order to be taken seriously. In Connecticut, my state is small enough that I could go to a town hall meeting or a meeting held by my state representative tonight. And I believe there's actually a meeting being held by my state representative tonight where I could go there and I could have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him where I could have the same sort of conversation I'm having with you. And if he's got the good sense and decency to listen to me, maybe he'll take some of my ideas back to the state legislature with him. In other words, I have a greater ability to influence government here. And that to me is the real struggle behind this and why I don't think anybody should be disappointed as to oh, the overruling of Roveed as strictly as a legal matter, strictly as a constitutional interpretation matter. Mm -hmm. it's, it's returning these important questions to the place where they'll be more responsive. You and I have no control over a bad decision made by a, someone, a one of nine sitting in a black robe on a long bench. We just don't. We can't affect that. And the odds of us changing it nationally are little to none. Um, I'd rather have it back here. I think we're better for it as a country. Amazing. I mean, yeah. That's uh, uh, this is really, really just I want to reiterate like great conversation. I don't think this is happening enough where where people are really discussing this in depth for other people to learn about. Um, regarding um, regarding what rights of the fetus are recognized in the Roe v. Wade decision and Casey, my understanding is that there is some acknowledgement um, of fetal life. Um, I'm not sure to the extent it's recognized. I do know that if it is recognized in those things, and then Democrats tried to put a bill up that allowed abortion up until nine months, that those would kind of contradict. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I'm, yeah, like, what, so what is it? Roe and Casey were confusing decisions. So Roe established a trimester uh, framework for uh, state to restrain state regulation. So under the Roe framework, uh, okay. abortions were legal for through the first two trimesters. Um, Casey court comes back and says, no, that's a little too faulty because the state's interest is in protecting life. Um, we're going to move the goalposts 
to give the state a little more leeway, we're going to establish a viability framework. So it basically requires states to show that their regulation is prohibiting abortion um, after a fetus becomes viable or with viability being, at least in my understanding of it, whether it can survive outside the womb. Yeah, um, I mean, that's a, support. That's a so, moving so goalpost. So those those are the two those are the two um, distinctions between Roe and Casey. Um, I, I, I they both dodge the question of what a fetus actually is. The the underlying premise is that a, a woman herself gets to decide what whether she's carrying a mass of tissue or a human being and that's where the decision should rest that's a philosophical uh, scientific and religious decision everyone that, gets to live their truth right well that's one that doesn't belong in front of five uh, or in front of nine black robes it belongs in front of people who can wrestle with those questions and decide them because they're political not legal questions and a shout out to all of my friends out there who believe that uh, the federal constitution actually guarantees a right to life i love you you make great arguments but i i'm not necessarily persuaded at this point mm -hmm. so what what persuades you as, as far as considering um what what are the rights as, as far as the fetus goes and how do you balance those with a woman you know let's say um, th there's a small percentage of cases, um, uh, you know, that are rape and incest and, and people, people will have the sympathies there. And, and I do as well. Um, and there are people that, you know, are, that will say, uh, like, you know, this Kathy Barnett, uh, person running in Pennsylvania product of rape, you know, her and her mother are, you know, they could never have questioned. She never would have questioned having that child. So how do you, how do you, how do you balance, um, those rights? Uh, in the constitution federally there there are no protections or there's no right to let me take a step back federally there are no per, protections for life i just want to be clear on that as long as as a constitutional matter there is no right to feed a life there are no fetal rights under the 14th amendment there are strong arguments that feed if fetuses are human beings they're entitled to the equal protection of the laws um i would say we're talking about murder statues and the like etc um but just to be clear, as a legal matter, there are no rights for fetal life in the, in the federal constitution. I have a follow-up to that, too, um, because we have, um, I forget the name of the law, but in many states, and I think federally, like if, you, if you're in the commission of a federal crime and you um, kick a pregnant woman down the stairs and the fetus dies or, and she, or they both die, um, that is two, two murders. Um, and in many states, that's also the case, other than I think in New York, as of 2019, it's no longer murder. Um, that is a, such an interesting split to me. And it's like, logically, it doesn't make sense, but legally, it doesn't really matter if it makes sense. It does. It, you're right to ponder it. And that's why I think the equal protection advocates for for life have a strong argument, because 
let's take a look at a case out of Alabama. I forget the exact name, but I know I saw it in the last five years. So a situation just as you described, a guy uh, kicked somebody or struck a pregnant woman in uh, the belly. She lost her fetus. I'm not sure if she died. Alabama charged him with a fetal murder of a fetal person um, because they have such a criminal statue and the Alabama Supreme Court upheld his conviction or whatever their lack appeal court for criminal appeals of last resort is upheld his conviction and flat out said that uh, the fetus is a human being entitled to the protection of the laws. I think states that um, pass laws uh, saying life begins at conception face an interesting equal protection conundrum because if they're recognizing persons under the law, under their own law, et cetera, the, the text of the 14th Amendment says that those persons have to be given equal protection of the law. Uh, there's such a thing as prosecutorial discretion on whether people should be charged for uh, certain crimes, et cetera. You could see the exercise of that discretion being made in cases where there are assaults or the, I know the common one is, is will those be um, exercised against somebody who, let's say, a poor woman with a drug addiction who becomes pregnant and her, her baby is born with a fentanyl addiction or a marijuana addiction or some other drug addiction, or they die as the result of the mother's drug use or it, should the mother be charged with criminal assault? Should the mother be charged with um, with uh, with manslaughter for the causing the death of her her baby by her drug usage? Though so I I do not deny those are incredibly difficult questions to answer. Um, I think we'll see them resolved by uh, by prosecutorial discretion. Um, I don't see there being any federal bar to prosecutions. I'm skeptical as to who can assert the right as to equal protection if a state chooses not to prosecute um, in those instances. I'm not, I, I honestly would struggle to see who could assert standing for such a right or stand in for such a right um, under federal jurisprudence at this point. I just struggle to see it. I would sympathize with the argument, but to me, the, the, the law as we know, the law as we understand it is going to confine these issues to what the state decides to do. Um, as to the moral, philosophical, and scientific um, uh, debate over rape and incest, et cetera, um, and the mother's life being at risk. Um, I, I'm not as familiar with the rape and incest um, arguments coming back the other way. My view is, is that it's an innocent life that had no participation in it. Um, there's a duty of care um, involved, special duty of care involved to protect that innocent life and give it a chance to live as to the um, 
as to the mother's life being in danger, even though it's unforeseeable that her life may be in danger. I think, um, again, going back to the, the special relationship, the fetus had nothing to do uh, with putting itself there. There was a age old principle with the common law that if you put somebody at risk, um, you had to make every reasonable effort possible to save them. And if you didn't, you could be uh, criminally charged or you could be criminally sued for that or not criminal civilly sued for that. I think the distinction, at least in so far as the law informs that situation is the baby had nothing to do with putting itself there. Um, the mother has to make every effort to save its life and give it a chance to live that she can even at the risk of her own life because as I think what many people shy away from in that debate is you sound cold-hearted when you say the mother put the baby there it was her body that conceived the baby um but that that the that, that, that sometimes life and reality are cold and brutal in that sense. And I, I, to me, at least philosophically, scientifically, and religiously, that's where I fall. And I think the law informs that to some extent. So one of the things that you, you just made me think of is, is these laws, uh, the one that, was, that did not pass the Senate, um, it also has language around psychological harm to the mother meaning let's let's suppose a you know 13 or 14 year old is a victim of incest or, or rape or, or pregnancy um and they have um you know this causes them to have um and the, uh, this causes them to have like suicidal thoughts where they kill themselves and therefore that's that's both lives or uh, a lost and i think that's another moral question to wrestle with right or a legal one maybe because uh, you you lose you kind of lose two if if a woman is is totally you know poor and and that might you know experiencing that psychological distress that might be what they resort to would, would, you know I I don't I life is hard David I don't deny that life's hard it takes a toll um um I am religious I believe that sin take exacts a price regardless of what it is, emotionally, physically, et cetera. It exacts a heavy price. Um, I don't think we should be looking for the easy out, though, that we're going to terminate one life because it's the easy out to save another. I think what we, what we need to do is address the difficult problem in front of us with an eye toward saving both lives. I think, I just think that um, ending one life to save another is a pretty poor excuse to avoid a, diff a more difficult solution that's best for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, so if I, if, I have, um, if I have this kind of right uh, to summarize how we got to where we are, um, this, this, this substantive basically due process that was used to kind of push um, laws to the states, right? Um, and so we have these unenumerated rights that the state, that the federal uh, Supreme Court now recognizes. And then using the 14th Amendment or substantive due process, they can force those 
rights on the states. Do I have that right? So yes, uh, you you do. Um, there there are no laws in play though. It's just which rights are going to be applied to invalidate or restrain state laws and state actions. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and how do how how do we get to that definition of unenumerated rights? Because it's I, I just I'm surprised it's it's. I, I get why it's there, right? It was it was because they didn't want to limit the federal government and say they could do other things, right? But how do we get to a definition when it's so broad that you can just kind of... I thought that's why I said earlier that I think Justice Alito's opinion is historically right. unfaithful as to its method of analysis. As it stands, um, it's a wide open question as we get there. There, Even if Justice Alito returns us to this deeply rooted in history and tradition um, formulation, I think the the 14th Amendment framers envisioned a clear process for recognizing unenumerated rights, um, clear definitions of those rights. They center on what the meaning of the privileges or immunities clauses. They go back to the those the sources of those rights, which would be Corey Field versus Coriel mm-hmm. in the 1866 67 uh, Civil Rights Acts. Um, I, I, I think those are the unenumerated rights that the Constitution protects. Beyond that, um, I, I, I don't really see there being room for additional ones apart from the ones we create by constitutional amendment. Okay. And I know that the, the Alito decision was very, or the draft is very clear um, that this only apply, applies uh, to, to abortion. And I think I, think I heard you say earlier that, um, uh, and, and what many uh, people are afraid of on, on the left is that um, this could be used as a sort of slippery well, slope well, argument. Come, come, come on, come on. Aaliyah, no, I'm not saying come on at you, David. I'm saying okay. come on, on, come on, come on at Justice Alito. You really think that people read you joining the uh, dissent in o- Obergefell and protesting Kennedy's reshaping of the substantive due process analysis. You really think people read that and believe that you say, what you're doing in Dobbs is not going to call those rights into question. Okay, so um, you kind of agree with the... With I, the- ag- I agree with the left. I yeah, agree okay. with the li- liberals on that, that I think returning to the Glucksberg analysis co- does call those rights into question, even if they may survive under an equal protection analysis. Yeah. I, I just think returning to Glucksburg gives the court a right to revisit a lot of precedents and with a so-called super majority where we don't have to worry about John Roberts, there's an act that states will be eager to test how far the court is willing to go um, in terms of rolling back some of these unenumerated rights precedents. So I agree with the left that a lot of precedents are in jeopardy right doomsday extent that the left believes them to be in. But yes, I do believe those precedents are in trouble. And that that 
stands independent to whether I think those precedents were accurate or not, just as a prognosticator or yeah. a pundit, I'm saying they're in jeopardy. And it's, uh, it goes back to why I have a distaste for just the way Justice Alito went about his analysis. Yes, I can say I agree with his uh, conclusion. I think it's historically accurate, but he has returned us essentially to the conservatives' version of picking and choosing which fundamental unenumerated rights that we want, and we're legislating from the bench again. I think both conservatives and liberals are equally guilty of wanting that from the U.S. Supreme Court. And I don't think the Constitution permits it. I don't think article, the art conception of an Article Three judiciary permits it. I don't think the 14th Amendment permits it. I think we should be returning to our privileges or immunities formulation, something that Justice Thomas has advocated for in the past, and that uh, quite frankly uh, um, scares some of the conservative members on the court. I know Justice Gorsuch and um, I believe Justice Barrett hinted that they may agree with Thomas, but saw no need to revisit that question at this point. Um, I lamented the other day in my article that we've been referencing that Justice Thomas, alas, you were the only constitutionally faithful justice on the court because you didn't, you didn't give rise to the inference that you were playing politics here. You remained historically accurate. And to me, it strikes me as quite frankly, and maybe I shouldn't say this as somebody who wants to get cases in front of the Supreme Court, but it, Justice Alito's draft opinion strikes me as a bit hypocritical in the sense that he went out of his way to pay such deference for history, but completely ignored the history as to the method of analysis for unenumerated rights and their source. And, and you think that's why Clarence Thomas, even though he's the most senior justice on that side of the uh, of the majority opinion, did not write the. Majority. I I don't think he could because I don't think the other justices are willing to join him in his privileges or immunities clause belief, and I don't think he's willing to compromise on that. I think we will see a concurrence in the judgment from Justice Thomas citing his decisions in uh, in McDonald, his dissents and or concurrence in the judgment in McDonald versus City of Chicago as to the privileges or immunities clause. I just don't think that he could sign on to something that he viewed as constitutionally faithless. So do you think we'll see a second concurring opinion agreeing with the overall decision? But I think we will see a, a second concurring opinion from Thomas concurring in the uh, over in the judgment, it's called, but not joining the opinion, uh, Leto's opinion. I think we will see a concurrence of sorts from Roberts that says, I agree to some extent, but tries to strike a middle ground of some sort that leaves maybe the thinnest sliver of hope that Roe and Casey could survive. But other than that, um, 
I, I maybe Kavanaugh and Barrett will add some things to Alito's opinion and write separately, but th that those are the main ones that I see coming. Okay, I think. Uh, wh what about uh, the the question of a of a of a law passed at the federal level? I don't believe we covered that one. Let's talk about the Commerce Clause. <laughs> so wow. a, a, a criminal defense lawyer, uh, one of the most maddening things to me is how federal prosecutors exercise their, uh, their prosecutorial discretion. So let's give you a hypothetical. You tell me, David, if you think this is a, a crime. I get a gun, I go, I get a gun that I bought from, let's say, well, let's say I bought it from Remington. Um, I go, I'm living in Texas, I buy a gun from Remington, I go to my local gas station, I stick the gun in the clerk's face and I say, give me the money in the cash register. He gives me the money in the cash register, which comes out to $200, and I go driving off into the night, go back to my house in the next town over, and I do nothing more. The federal government charges me with a crime. Uh, is what I did a federal crime or not? Um, no. All right. Well, the answer is yes. Mm. Um, the reason why it's a federal crime, I have, even though I have not conducted anything in interstate commerce, I have not bought or sold anything in interstate commerce, etc. I have I my act of robbing the gas station was not an was not an act of commerce. It had nothing to do with commerce whatsoever. I wasn't buying, selling, or producing anything. I used a gun that traveled in interstate oh, commerce. Oh, I see what you're saying. So yeah, my personal I went, is what the actual thing is. Right. It's is. not a federal crime, but I yes. kid you not, I have seen it'll be charged as one. I have seen people charged on that exact hypothetical on as federal crimes. There aren't many actual federal crimes if you go right. back to the founding, yeah. So we're, we essentially look at a, a federal regime where if Congress can justify anything as having an effect even on, no matter how remote, on interstate commerce, because that behavior in the aggregate could have a substantial effect on interstate commerce by either hindering or facilitating interstate commerce, um, Congress can reach it with, through regulation. So the classic example is uh, the uh, 2005 Supreme Court case called Gonzalez v. Rach uh, to California. A, a California couple was growing uh, marijuana in their house or their backyard. They got, I think they get charged with a federal crime or they, um, they are subject to a federal raid or there's some sort of um, enforcement action. And they argue that they were growing it for uh, their own personal use and they had no intention of putting it in interstate commerce at all. The Supreme Court holds that the fact that they, even though they were engaged in an illicit activity, they were growing something that can't, is not, there's no legal market 
for it. There's no legal commerce recognized by it. And even though they had no intentions of putting it into commerce, they had engaged in, com in interstate commerce by essentially... Buying the seeds? <laughs> no, not even buying the seeds, simply by growing it and not participating in a black market economy. That was the functional basis for that decision. The end result is with respect to abortion laws, Congress can say, well, we may not be able to regulate abortion ourselves, but we can regulate the abortion procedure. We can ban the procedure. We can ban the use of whatever's used in the procedures. We can ban the procedures having itself as having an effect on the interstate <laughs> commerce. I, 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 and a lot of conservatives who haven't, who are a little bit outside the mainstream, think that that interpretation of the Commerce Clause, it has no bearing on the original meaning whatsoever, is not even remotely related to it. If Congress even goes close to doing something like that, we will all become conservatives about the Commerce Clause, or we will all become libertarians about the commerce clause it's just unconscionable to think of that and maybe roe will be the catalyst for revisiting the the interpretation of the commerce clause but to sum up my answer yes i think congress can regulate abortion and make it very difficult to get an abortion through uh through the exercise of its interstate commerce power does that include the other sides, a law to allow it? I Federal law preempts state law under the supremacy clause of the Constitution. So if the federal government is saying this is illegal, it's illegal federally and federal prosecutors can try to enforce it. Um, there's a case called Prince versus, Prince versus United uh, States that says that the federal government can't commandeer state uh, law enforcement and state prosecutors into enforcing its laws if they don't want to. So we could see, a, similar to marijuana, we could see sanctuary states pop up, yep. um, similar to immigration, et cetera, for mm -hmm. abortion, uh, where it's just not enforced. It just depends on how hard the federal prosecutors want to uh, pursue it. Federal law enforcement wants to pursue it. It'll ebb and flow with the change of whoever's in charge in, in whatever judicial district. And quite frankly, <coughs> the federal government has bigger fish to tackle, in my view, unless we really, really get a hard right concert pro-life uh, conservative in in office in the presidency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're sitting here uh, citing cases, and I don't remember what I had for dinner last night. So yeah. Very cool. Uh, so, uh, just a couple more questions. I think we're. I, I didn't. I didn't keep track of when we started, but this might end up being my record-breaking length of a podcast. I think oh, I love to run my mouth. I no, no, no. This that. is this is the necessary. It's it's. If I'm going to spend the time on it, it's going to be on stuff like this. Um, one of my other questions, 
um, is with regards to whether you think that the federal government or the state governments have any responsibilities uh, to protect uh, life or, or child welfare. I, I'm not constitutionally, um, in my view, again, it comes back to what we determine. It, it starts with a state determination of what personhood is, and then it, it really becomes a question of who can assert that and whether state discretion can, can be challenged by a like you or me, uh, claiming that we're representing the rights of the unborn, et cetera. People will make that challenge. I'm not, I'm not very confident that it will get that far from a moral, scientific, philosophical uh, perspective. I think there's an undoubted, um, an undoubted responsibility of the state to protect the life of the unborn. As I, I believe I mentioned earlier, I believe that abortion is intentional premeditated murder. Um, and I think the state should treat it that way. Um, and when I say I think they should treat it that way, um, I, I think they need to draw a distinction between um, manslaughter, which is I, I'm a drug addicted mother who ends up killing my, my unborn child through my drug addiction. I think that could qualify as manslaughter and even be mitigated. Um, in certain ways below manslaughter. And as a criminal defense lawyer, I would certainly be arguing for the for as much mitigation as I can, because again, drug addiction to disease, et cetera. Um, we, we, uh, my heart breaks for the woman. She's, she's a suffering mother in that context. But someone who goes deliberately into an abortion clinic with full possession of their faculties and makes a conscious decision to have an abortion to terminate the life of their unborn child, uh, in my mind, they've made a cold-hearted, cold-blooded decision to intentionally and premeditatedly commit a murder. Now, um, I, I think states that take that position have to be prepared to live with difficult consequences, and that is there needs to be some, so if we're going to adopt that rule as a society, there needs to be some sort of solicitation as to these are kids being brought into society. People have been getting abortions for a, any number of reasons, their economic status, their family mm -hmm. status, etc. I think it's imperative on the states to increase and make easier the adoption process. And I, I guess funding for taking care of them so that they're uh, not, you know, uh, I, think, I think Florida uh, is doing that, right? Funding for their system. Uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it, I they think- need to back up what they're saying, you know? Yeah, and I, I know it may not necessarily sit well with fiscal conservatives and uh, libertarians who believe you're responsible for the consequences of your own actions, but I think, it it, need, it 
it, it's something that we need as a society to take seriously um, if we're going to adopt and say these are where our values lie. And then I guess my the strange, this one's going to sound strange coming from a criminal defense lawyer, um, especially someone who defends rape allegations of rape cases. But um, I think we need to take a long, hard look at um, how we treat rape cases. Um, uh, the Supreme Court has not allowed states to treat them as capital offenses and impose mm -hmm. the death penalty, um, even for child rape. Um, I think those precedents are inconsistent with the Eighth Amendment and the Constitution and probably should be revisited. We have DNA testing now. Um, the issue of consent will always be a major one, but I think when we have clear-cut cases of rape, when we um, when I'm talking clear cut, we got the guy on high definition, high definition video in the act of doing it, and it is clear, indisputably clear that he is raping the woman. Um, we've seen him come in with the knife and hold it to her throat. Like I mean, the evidence is clear as day. Mm -hmm. I think that we we should send we don't tolerate that there should be the death penalty for that and um if we're gonna have a death penalty obviously um I, as I, yeah there's yeah. debates around that as a criminal defense lawyer i don't want a death penalty to be honest um i i just think there are too many mistakes in that that process um i i'm fundamentally I would say opposed to the death penalty as a general matter, but if we're going to have a death penalty and we're going to be applying it, I think biblically we applaud they applied the death penalty to rape. I think yeah. the death penalty should be applied to rape if we're going to have it. Yeah, especially for for people that are uh, have disproportionate lack of resources to defend themselves. They may find them. I think Brian Stevenson, Brian Stevenson's the, the author of that book. I forget what it was called, but it's a, it's about the, the death penalty in cases that he fought for um, with, with his uh, society. Um, I think the other thing about funding is, is where the, maybe the left has, has feet to stand on, which is that uh, they say that, you know, conservatives only care about the baby until it's born. Um, so I think, I think, what, what DeSantis is doing, if you're someone that's on the left, even though if you disagree with, you know, the law, you can at least have respect for, I think. And I've heard that from liberals that I've spoken to that, you know, at least he's putting his, the money literally where the mouth, where his mouth is and, and providing it. Um, well, they don't, and don't get me wrong too. Um, is for fiscal responsibility is everybody. And I, I, don't want to see people embark on lifetime cycles of living on the government dole. But um, when we're putting our values on life, uh, we damn well better put our money where our mouth is. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the outside of, um, 
you know, when I look at it from a logical perspective, just overall, and I think we can, um, there's one more topic I want to touch on. It's just one question. So hopefully it won't um, take up too much more of your time. Um, you know, when you, if you're pro-life or you're pro-abortion up until nine months or whatever it is, at least those are kind of consistent to me. Um, whereas if, if you're a, a, a pro-life person who agrees that, okay, abortion is okay up until five months and you're a uh, and you're a uh, pro-choice person that agrees to that five months, you're both implicitly kind of acknowledging that your position doesn't make sense it, when I process it logically, right? I, I, I don't know because, I mean, I was playing devil's advocate, for instance, even though this is not what I agree with, um, biologically a sperm fertilizes an egg um, and at that point what do you have but a undeveloped fertilized egg that is there's no if we go to um, I believe it's Socrates's allegory of the cave mm -hmm. and what constitutes sentience and how do we know what's real, et cetera, and what constitutes a person, I think we're looking at something having to do with self-awareness in that regard. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason I draw the line at conception is I don't think we can pinpoint where, where something transforms from a biological a fertilized egg into this is a person. I yeah, think that's that's kind of where I'm agreeing with 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 the 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 position you take is consistent. I think, and the position that right, and so so basically, just to complete my thought as yeah. to devil's advocate, um, I think there are many people out there trying to make reasoned arguments as to where personhood begins. Um, I know. With the uh, historical analogies, it was with the heartbeat, et cetera, yep. the quickening as it was um, termed. Um, it could have been, it could be with the development of the brain. There are all kinds of reasonable arguments to be made out there. I just don't think I I think they're 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 foolish in one sense that they think they can pinpoint where personhood begins right that's that's kind of what i'm saying right so like if you're if you're um if you're pro-life and but you but you kind of say okay up until five months you're saying that you're admitting that up until five months it's not a person and then if you're on the pro-abortion side after five months you're admitting it is and so the compromising positions kind of are contradictory to the whole the whole philosophy like logically when i think through it yeah, I, 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 I totally agree with you. And I, I take the same view as to rape and, and incest. As why should there be an exception for those? You're still talking about an innocent human life. I have a little more sympathy for people who argue as to the life of the mother, even though I don't agree with that. Um, but rape and incest, come on, it's still an innocent human life. And that's from your, your personal perspective, not necessarily yeah. the legal. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So the last thing that I will, I will touch on um, is because I found that I find it funny that basically both sides are like swapping on the vaccine debate versus abortion debate. Um, do you, do you have any kind of thoughts around that? Like, you know, as far as 
rights to your you know you have the right to your own body and and I, don't know, I know you you're talking about how you're how you're arguing it um i was enough of a i had enough of a sense of humor that when i was in front of the federal appellate court for the new york health care workers i raised the challenge that if abortion was okay um as a right to bodily autonomy uh so was declining in a vaccine and the second circuit uh, court of appeals was so miffed as to that right that they issued a order a couple of days before oral argument expressly prohibiting me from addressing that claim at oral argument on the New York healthcare workers. So you're saying that because um, because we, we, we talk about like the similarities and differences, right? That's the crux yeah. of it. So you're saying that for this case, you were not allowed to compare. I was not allowed to compare at oral argument. I was allowed to brief the issue. I was allowed to present the claim, but at oral argument, I was expressly limited to arguing the free exercise claims that we brought. I was not allowed to argue my argument that uh, Roe, Casey, and uh, various other Supreme Court precedents established a fundamental unenumerated right to bodily autonomy, and that right was sufficient to encompass uh, the right to a decline of vaccination, uh, state-mandated vaccination. So right, I, I was a believer, I am a believer in that, in, in that sense. Um, and I, I, I'm not going to comment on what Dobbs are, will do to that argument because I haven't briefed it and I'm not going to give my adversaries any ammunition to use against me. But it is, has, it is an argument that I have raised um, specifically with an eye toward a Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Right, because the bodily autonomy argument kind of raises the issue, to, which is what the what the um, well, abortion advocates would 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 use. To- I got I got, I got fortunately good lawyers are never hamstrung because they know. Uh, obviously, I'm raising this uh, claim while the Supreme Court's considering uh, Dobbs, and so I'm like, well, it's likely to get overruled, so I got to have a backup case. There was a case called Cruzon versus um, Missouri Department of Health or Director of Health that basically was about um, pulling the plug on somebody. And even though the decision didn't necessarily turn out all that good, um, the Supreme Court said in broad enough language that you have a right to control what shall be done with your own body. And I think that's broad enough of a leg to stand on for me because there was also a... um, a case about forcibly uh, or surgically extracting a bullet 
from a uh, criminal suspect uh, from the Supreme Court um, where the state actually tied him down to an operating table, knocked him out, and uh, cut him open to get the slug out of him for forensic analysis. And the Supreme Court held that that was a constitutional violation and cited Cruz on, I believe. So that was out of California. It was in the 1980s, I believe. So there yeah. are press Precedents out there independent from Roe and Casey that uh, support the argument. Um, so all hope is not lost. Right, because the, the, the bodily autonomy, for, and then people will say, well, the, the, the point where people disagree that are pro-life is that the baby has also has bodily autonomy and how do you, you can't outweigh that. That's well, kind yeah, of- Yeah, you, they have some autonomy, but they're subject to their parents' control. So if I'm a kid and God knows as they're speaking as a formerly rebellious kid, uh, my parents have the right to control my upbringing. So yeah, I um, remember a, a fetus rather. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that I, I, I'm not really a, I, I, I think the argument's just a little too cute to get to bodily autonomy for the life. Okay. Um, So I, I, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, just, just for my uh, viewers, uh, you know, these, these questions all come from honest discussions that I have with um, friends that are of the, the left persuasion and the right persuasion. And so when I come up with these questions, it's they're they're the results of of uh, you know honest discussions and, and debates about you know what the Constitution means going forward. Um, so your this whole conversation was just so enlightening to me. I might have to listen back to it like four or five times um, just to just to grasp fully what uh, what you've been saying. But uh, what... well, thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. It's been a while since. I've gotten to be this fired up about something that's not a case. <laughs> Love so it. I've loved it. I've loved it. Where where can people um, follow you or 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 read your your blog? Um, I will list it in the you know when I when I post the edit and post the video. But uh, where can where can people follow you? I I sporadically blog at www.cameronallackinson.com. Um, you can find all the information to. Follow me on Twitter at, at camlatkinson.com. Um, I always am on the lookout for new readers and new followers. So come join me. It's fun. Hey, well, um, you know, thank you for, for this discussion. Um, I definitely think we broke the record of, of longest podcast. Um, <laughs> which oh, is we had a lot me. of ground to cover and I am a very worthy. Yes. No, it's, it's great. It's great. There are probably some other podcast episodes that we could do just out of this one um, no, I, I gotta throw one more in there to the congressional intern who has to watch this someday hello <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh yeah uh, but uh you know thank you for thank you for coming on it's it's a discussion that i felt was lacking again so i appreciate your time and uh i hope everybody that listens left or right can can benefit from from listening to this. I think it is a service again. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it, David. All right. Have a good one. Thank you. You too.